0: It's all been about Jesus all along. It's all been about Jesus and it all crumbles, all crashes down without him. He's the cornerstone, he's the rock, he's the foundation, he's the logos, he's the truth with a capital T. And everything falls apart without Jesus. He's what you've been searching for my skeptical friend. He's that authoritative basis upon which you can know right from wrong and the purpose to all of this. He's the cornerstone. It all depends upon Him. And without Him, it all comes crashing down. We're going to look at Isaiah 28, and we're going to see a prophecy that coincides with something from Psalm 118 that comes up five times in the New Testament. So most of them, what I'm going to do is show how this prophecy in Isaiah shows up five times in Matthew, in Luke, in Romans twice, and in Acts. Jesus himself is the cornerstone. It all is built around him. He's what you've been searching for, my skeptical friend. If you build your worldview on Jesus, on the gospel of Jesus Christ, on the truth of God's word, you'll be unshakable there was this open-minded dialogue and an audience of people from various worldviews who would come together and they could share their worldview and you could hear what they believed, you could take a little bit for yourself and ooh, that, that, that sounds kind of nice, I think I'll have some of that. It's like this religion buffet and I'll have some of that and a scoop of that and people would practice syncretism, just kind of piecing together a piecemeal pastiche of, of a religious worldview. It's very similar to what we do today in Seattle where we're very open-minded to everybody and maybe everybody's right even if their worldviews are perfectly incongruent one with the other. And before this very open-minded council, Paul shows up, notices that there is an altar that is built to an unknown God. And even quoting from their poets and pointing to this altar, Paul meets them where they're at to start with what they believed and say, yes, you did miss one God. This altar to an unknown God, in case you missed one, guess what? You did miss one. And in fact, he's the only one and he demands Repentance. Watch how open-minded this council is after Paul says that. You can relate pretty well, my skeptical friend, to what it's like to be a Christian in the Seattle area today. In Acts 17, verse 24, Paul says, The God who made the whole world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth. Isn't that beautiful? You want an authoritative basis upon which to condemn racism. Look at the scriptures. This is beautiful. From one man he has made every nationality. We're brothers and sisters. To live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times. God called you here now. Now why? And the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God. And perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Since then we are God's offspring. We shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. They're not so open-minded anymore. But others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysus, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Paul goes before this open-minded council. It's a lot like modern Seattle culture, and he says there's only one God. He demands repentance. He's going to judge the whole earth, and he has proved that he is God by raising this one from the dead. Jesus does that. You have to make a decision. There's no other God. There's no one else who, based on prophecy, claimed that he would resurrect and then followed through. There's nobody else that Isaiah's prophecy pointed forward to. There's nobody else who could claim to fulfill what Isaiah foretold. It's Jesus, it's Jesus alone. So I'm not gonna teach this Old Testament text as though I were an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. I'm a Christian, so I'm gonna teach it like a Christian. I'm gonna show you how the New Testament is built on this prophecy. and how this prophecy points forward to the New Testament. The imagery in Isaiah 28, verse 16, draws upon an ancient teaching as well from Psalm 118. Here's Psalm 118, 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord. It is wondrous in our sight. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. That's pretty amazing. By the way, if you want to see a biblical case for the repetition of choruses and worship music, look to the psalm. Psalm 118 is one of them. It's the stone that the builders rejected that has become the cornerstone. There's similar imagery in today's text in Isaiah 28. This cornerstone imagery is pivotal to understanding exactly what's happening here. So, I want to thank Jen and Alicia, Spencer, Jesse Ketchum, all of your help making an illustration whereby you could see the idea of the cornerstone at play. When you walk in downtown Seattle, you'll see this one stone that sticks out of the corner of the building. It has the year inscribed on it. It's a year like the building was dedicated or built. We even have one at the Highlands Renton Campus. There's a cornerstone. It's conspicuous. It stands out. It bears the weight of both walls and a quarter of the weight of the portion of the roof that's over that stone. The whole structure is held together by the cornerstone. Everything rests upon it. In Isaiah's day, if you didn't have the ability to custom cut stones to exactly the right size that you needed, you would just kind of draw from the quarry what stones you had. And some stones are different sizes. Some stones were misshapen. And you might take the size and shape stone that you need for the portion of the building that you're at at that given time. And so as you look at the quarry and you look at the different stones at your disposal, you may say, I'll use that one, I'll use that one, I'll use that one, no, I'm not gonna use that one. And you'd reject a stone and then continue to use the others. This is an indictment of the leadership of Israel at the time to say that the builders, meaning the scribes, the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Sadducees, the writers of the law, that they overlooked Jesus as they were building the Talmud this book of additional rules and laws and regulations on the people of Israel in the Old Testament before Jesus's arrival. And when Jesus came, they rejected him. They overlooked him like they would overlook a stone. And to overlook that stone and reject it and say, we're not gonna use it, we're not gonna believe it, my skeptical friend, is that what you've been doing with Jesus? I'm gonna overlook him, I'm not gonna believe him, I don't think he was historically real, I don't think he is who he says he is. This prophecy says it turns out he is the cornerstone There are other points in which the cornerstone imagery in Scripture comes back in Jesus' own teachings in Matthew 21, even to crush the people who initially rejected him. You can see that the weight of it all is built on him, and I see this as analogous to your worldview, especially if you like the people at Mars Hill where Paul was speaking in the book of Acts have constructed your worldview from a little bit here and a little bit there. You know, I'll take this from Buddhism, this sounds a little bit nice from Islam, and I like this from from Scientology and this teaching from this author, even though he disagrees with this teaching from this author and the two of them were completely incongruous one with the other. And I'm gonna piecemeal my worldview together with a little bit here and a little bit there. All of it falls apart without the cornerstone. And it reminds me of a friend of mine, that I led to Christ, and as he came to see that Jesus is the cornerstone, he actually cursed, which I thought was funny. I'd been sparring with him for years on end, and, and finally he agreed to just go through the gospel of John with me. See, he's a Gentile, meaning he's non-Jewish, and so the gospel of John is tailor-made, tailor-made to show Gentiles that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is God. Matthew wrote his gospel to convince Jews that that Yeshua is Messiah, that Jesus is the Messiah. That's why he starts his gospel off with Abraham. But John doesn't start off with Abraham. John was writing to a Gentile nation that had been previously conquered by Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was a student of the teachings of Aristotle and Plato and Socrates. Even being tutored himself, Alexander the Great was. Within Aristotelian views, all the universe is considered immortal. This friend of mine had taken to sort of a neo-Orthodoxy version of Aristotelian thought, reading the writings of Ayn Rand, who took Aristotle's view that all the matter of the universe is just immortal. It simply is. Richard Dawkins even once said this as well. The universe simply is. This is a rearticulation of the Aristotelian view of the universe, that it just exists. It's just here. It's just always been here. That was kind of the mainstream of thought, for a long time even behind scientific thought the 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 thing that bugs you is that even immortal matter still demands a creator and an explanation but then there was this young punk named Hubble with a telescope who discovered that the universe was expanding and because it was expanding it had to have at one point been closer together this is actually the origin behind the big bang Christians ought not view it quite as the enemy that we sometimes do Because this discovery of Hubble's actually was elemental to Albert Einstein, the greatest mind in the world, moving from atheism to deism, saying famously, I see now the necessity for a beginning. But this friend of mine still held to Aristotelian views. The Aristotelian view was always searching for the logos, the basis, the origin of truth. It's as though we uncovered logic, see logos, but we don't know where it really came from. Because the default status of the universe really should be non-existent, but we exist. We can't really account for where life came from. Miller and Urey electrified some amino acids and made tar mostly, but you know we really can't explain how life came from non-life. Moreover, in this universe that ought not exist but does, and in these life forms that we inhabit that we can't account for— Really, if we just inexplicably exploded into existence ex nihilo out of nothingness, there ought not be some sort of moral imperative that holds sway because there's no moral arbiter in such a universe. We're just one clump of stardust talking to another clump of stardust. We have no purpose or meaning, and ultimately when you die, it's all over. You're annihilated, hence nihilisms. There's no purpose to anything. There's no meaning to anything, and yet, and yet, Deep down, my skeptical friend, you know that there's a purpose here. You know in the marrow of your bones that murder is morally wrong, but you can't account for how you know that. And when you get passionate about these things, and especially more than ever, when you begin to engage Christians in debate, you tip your cards, you show your hand, you're not really an atheist. You're forsaking nihilism. The only true atheists I've ever met are Utterly apathetic. The most m- meaningless thing in the world is arguing with a stupid Christian. But atheists who are passionate and debate and even bother showing up for debates already tip their hand because they're presupposing purpose. And if you presuppose that there's purpose in anything, you're forsaking nihilism. That cognitive dissonance, that incongruity between the way that you're acting and what you believe, the way that you'll borrow from Christianity, presupposing meaning and morality and authority while then condemning Christianity. That's never going to go away. Nothing in this world is ever going to satisfy that except for Jesus. This skeptical friend of mine and I got on the phone. He finally agreed to go through the gospel of John and five or six words in, he stopped me and he cursed. The opening words of John are, in the beginning was the word. And he stopped me and said, and he cursed. And he said, why is word capitalized? Why is word capitalized? He cursed again, he said, is Jesus the Logos? I said, yeah, he's the Logos. He had been searching for the Logos. Aristotle had been searching for the Logos. Ayn Rand had been searching for the Logos and now my friend Charles had found it, it's Jesus. And he said, Jesus is the truth with a capital T, isn't he? I said, yeah, he is the way, he is the truth and he is the life. You found the Logos, Charles, it's Jesus. It's a beautiful thing to look at this conspicuous blank in your worldview and to know that only Jesus could fill it. If it weren't for that, the whole thing would come crashing down. He's the cornerstone. He's what's missing. And only Jesus, Jesus alone is the one who was prophesied to die and to resurrect as an atonement for the sin that you and I contribute to. Jesus alone is the cornerstone. He's the foundation. He's the basis. Everything makes sense. Even logic itself comes from the logos, the word Jesus. So in Isaiah 28, the opening of the chapter, the prophet Isaiah is speaking, condemning words upon Ephraim or Samaria, speaking about God's coming judgment. But then in verse 14, he pivots to speak to Judah, the kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem lies. Judah had made a covenant with Assyria to try to avoid the the coming onslaught. And this was futile. This was meaningless. This would not work. So, in the larger context, I'm going to read the larger context, but I want to focus on this one verse and connect it to the New Testament. Here is Isaiah 28. Beginning in verse 14, Isaiah is condemning Judah for their covenant with death, their covenant with Assyria and making a prophecy about a coming cornerstone. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem, hence Judah. For you said, we've made a covenant with death and we've made an agreement with Sheol. When the overwhelming catastrophe passes through, it will not touch us because we've made falsehood our refuge and have hidden behind treachery. Therefore, the Lord God said, look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, and the one who believes will be unshakable. And I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the mason's level. Everything is built according to this standard of righteousness, and water will flood your, hail will sweep away away your false refuge, and water will flood your hiding place. We've seen God use hail and floods as instruments of his wrath and discipline in the past. Your covenant with death will be dissolved and your agreement with Sheol will not last. When the overwhelming catastrophe passes through, you will be trampled. Every time it passes through, it will carry you away. It will pass through every morning, every day, and every night. Only terror will cause you to understand the message. Have you gotten so hard-hearted and so far from God that only such messages of the wrath of God would shake you from your sinful slumber? Indeed, the bed is too short to stretch out on. Isn't that the worst? And its cover is too small to wrap up in. Isn't that bad? This covering they made for themselves was inadequate. Nothing would hide them from the coming wrath of God manifest by the Assyrian army that approached. For the Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perazim. This is 2 Samuel five twenty, where the Lord was likened to a mighty flood that engulfed David's enemies. He will rise in wrath as at the valley of Gibeon. That's in Joshua chapter 10, the day that God made the sun stand still. To do his work, his unexpected work, to perform his task, his unfamiliar task. These words unexpected and unfamiliar come because as God's covenant people, they were acquainted only with favor from God when they were in touch with God. And now they're experiencing discipline from God, which is God's sovereign right to do. Now, so now do not scoff or your shackles will become stronger. Indeed, I have heard from the Lord God of armies, a decree of destruction for the whole land." So I wanted you to see the pericope, the larger context, but I want to zoom in on verse 16 and show how this is fulfilled multiple times in the New Testament. Take a look at this diagram. You can see how it has roots in Psalm 118, 22 and 23. It's beautiful teaching about the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It came from the Lord. It's beautiful in our sight. Now you see the same imagery come in today's Text, Tom, uh, Isaiah twenty eight sixteen. therefore the Lord God said, look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, the one who believes will be unshakable. These teachings appear in Matthew 21, in Luke 20, both in teachings about the parable of the vineyard, in Romans 9 and in Romans 10. How many of you guys missed that when we studied Romans? This same teaching comes up in two adjacent chapters and in Acts chapter 4. So here's home base. I want to visit these New Testament texts, and I want you to make Jesus the cornerstone of your life today. Let's look at these teachings of Jesus as a fulfillment of everything that the law and the prophets foretold, that Jesus himself would posit himself as the fulfillment of this teaching. It's not just me. He was looking at a connection between Isaiah and what the New Testament says. It was Jesus himself who claimed to be this New Testament fulfillment of an Old Testament promise. Luke twenty four thirty six. the resurrected Jesus is gonna talk with some of his people shortly after the crucifixion. This is three days later. As they were saying these things, he himself stood in their midst. He said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and terrified and they thought they were seeing a ghost. Just watch what Jesus does in a little bit to prove he's not a ghost. Why are you troubled, he asked them. And why do doubts arise in your hearts? He knows about your doubts, my skeptical friend. He knows about it. Listen to the way he spoke to his people Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He's proving he's not a ghost. They've also come full circle, full circle, because the first time that he saw them, they were fishing, weren't they? And now he's eating broiled fish with them to prove he's not a ghost, that he's real, flesh and bone, resurrected. He told them, these are my words, that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the prophets, that's Isaiah, the book we're in right now as a church, and the Psalms like Psalm 118 that we pointed to today, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day and repentance for, for, repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. How cool is it that our nation didn't even exist when he said that? beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And look, I'm sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high, foretelling of the Holy Spirit of God that we experience every time we worship at Highlands Community Church. So Jesus himself claimed that he was the fulfillment of the law, the prophets, the Psalms. So I'm not taking creative liberties here when I say this. Take a look at Acts chapter 4 for one of the five references to this teaching of Jesus as the cornerstone. While they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus and Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of and the men came to about 5,000. So just imagine how big the whole crowd was. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them. By what power or in what name have you done this? You see, they'd caused quite a ruckus. There's a man who'd been paralyzed his whole life into his 40s, and Peter and John, by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, by the power of the resurrection of Jesus, healed him. And that formerly paralyzed man was standing right there. His standing there in his healed state, just standing there, redeemed by God. And these militantly religious and skeptical onlookers didn't know what to make of it. So they asked, by what power did you do this? It carries with it the, in, the, the inherent accusation that they're wielding demonic powers to do these things. Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Y'all watch out. When you see those words in the book of Acts, something awesome always follows it. And he said to them, rulers of the people and the elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Peter, that's very politically incorrect. It's very offensive, Peter. Tone it down. Be open-minded. This is the Holy Spirit speaking through Peter. All right, listen, Christians, I've been blessed by God to have a front row seat to see the Holy Spirit convert people from various worldviews. I've seen spiritists in the Amazon converted to salvation in Christ. I've seen Satan worshipers give their lives to Christ. I've seen Buddhists give their lives to Christ. I've seen Mormons come to true faith in the true Christ. I've seen multiple mills and atheists give their lives to Christ. And I've never led any one of them to Christ by watering down the gospel and trying not to offend them. What Peter just spoke, Peter of all people, what he just spoke by the power of the Holy Spirit that had seized him in that moment is God's own version of the gospel. So who are we to water that down? Don't mitigate the gospel. Don't try to make it less offensive. He just showed them that they're the ones who crucified Jesus. They rejected him, but he turns out to be the cornerstone. He turns out to be everything. It's like Paul at Mars Hill reminding people of the coming judgment of God, that he's the only one true God. He goes on to say there is salvation in no one else. He's not open-minded about this. For there is no other name under heaven given to the people by which we must be saved. He alone is the cornerstone. Do you see the singular nature of the cornerstone? It's not cornerstones. He is the cornerstone. You're the builders, you rejected him, but he has become the cornerstone. You turned your back on him, but it turns out he's everything. My skeptical friend, don't stand in judgment before God having rejected Jesus only to see that he's been the cornerstone all along. Heed Peter's warning to the religious leaders of his day while I share it with you today. Look at Romans 9. The same teaching shows up in Romans 9. What should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not achieved righteousness of the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, look, I'm putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over and the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. There it is, today's text in Romans 9. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. Talking about Israel. I can testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Since they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempted to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Israel's stumbling was over their own attempts to make themselves look righteous, They rejected the cornerstone and built up a legalistic culture, rejecting the stone that turns out to be the cornerstone. They rejected Jesus, but it turns out he's everything. This is similar to something that has seized our culture today. It's called virtue signaling. Virtue signaling today is the legalism of the Pharisees then. This idea that you have to show how woke you are, show what a good person you are, I'll bet that if I scroll back through your social media timeline 10 years ago, whatever you were doing, my woke friend at the time, you were championing whatever causes you were told to champion at the time. And some of those are directly incongruous and directly contradictory with what you're championing today, trying to show how enlightened you are, show how woke you are, show how compassionate you are, show what a good person you are. You're trying to fill that vacuum in your soul because you know that you need a savior and you're trying to be your own savior. You're caught in the same trap as the legalist. You're stumbling over the same stumbling stone. You'd think that by showing how good you are, you could save yourself, but you can't, you never will, only Jesus can save you. Legalism makes much of the self and little of God. It does nothing to solve the actual problem and it is never satiated, it is never satisfied. You will never be done virtue signaling and you'll feel just as empty at the end of your days. Would you instead confess your own depravity, confess your own sin, instead of broadcasting how virtuous and righteous you are, Confess to God that Jesus is Lord and you're not and be saved, be saved, be redeemed. Have your whole worldview built on the cornerstone of Jesus and stop tripping over him to try to make yourself look like a good person. Here it is in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I think I've heard that one before. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. This is referring to Isaiah 28. Since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This same teaching from Isaiah 28 shows up in Romans 9 and Romans 10, just a few verses later. It's used in the gospels to teach as well. From the same metaphor that we actually saw at first in Song of Songs and now again in Isaiah 5. It also appears in the Gospels in Matthew 21 and Luke 20. The metaphor is that God looks at Israel like it is his vineyard. That vineyard has not borne good fruit and so it is God's prerogative as the vineyard owner, owner to chop it down and start something new. He'll preserve a remnant within it but now Other farmers will come in. This is a reference to the Gentiles. You see, in the Old Testament, salvation came from adherence to the law of God, which proved your faith in the coming Messiah. The righteousness that came about through Moses said, The man who does these things will live by them. And this is adherence to the Old Testament law, which proved your faith in the Messiah to come. And now, righteousness that comes from faith is a proclamation that Jesus is Lord. Now everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So it's never been about an ethnocentric Israel. It's always been about all nations. And now everyone can call upon God and be saved as a result. Paul was grieved for his own people, Israel, because he knew that they had zeal, but they were, their zeal was pointed in the wrong direction. I admire you, my virtue-signaling legalist friend, because you, you do want to do the right thing, but your zeal lacks knowledge. Rather, would you confess sin? Would you confess that Jesus is Lord? Would you surrender to him, be filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and let repentance of sin be evidence of your conversion? So that instead of virtue signaling and how great a person you are, you would freely confess the sin that you have and that in your weakness, the strength of God would be made known all the greater. He's the cornerstone, he's the foundation, he's the basis for all of it. So in these later parables in which Jesus takes the same theme, introduced in Song of Songs, reiterated in Isaiah five, now in his parables, he refers to Israel as the vineyard. Listen to uh, Matthew 21. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. He leased it to tenant farmers and went away. When the time came to harvest fruit, he sent his servants to the farmers to collect his fruit. The farmers took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. This is in reference to some of the generations of prophets that God would send to Israel, and they would just kill them. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first group, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenant farmers saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those farmers? And the Pharisees just fall right into it. He will completely destroy those terrible men, they told him, and lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his fruit at the harvest. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This is what the Lord has done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they knew he was speaking about them. Although they were looking for a way to arrest him, they feared the crowds because the people regarded him as a prophet. That's the ultimate like, hey moment, when you realize that for three years, this dude has been talking about you, but in parables, and you didn't have ears to hear, so you couldn't hear what the Spirit was saying. You see, early on in his ministry, Jesus would disappear into the crowd. But now, toward the end of his ministry, in Matthew 21, when he he again refers to the Psalm 118 cornerstone. He again refers to the Isaiah 28 cornerstone image in the same parable of the vineyard in Luke chapter 20. At this point, he's being more overt. He's actively incurring his own coming crucifixion, knowing that it's a fulfillment of prophecy, knowing even that their hardness of heart was a fulfillment of prophecy. Prophecy, in fact, that comes from the book we're studying right now, the book of Isaiah, Therefore, the Lord God said, look, I've laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone. We don't serve a great high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. Hebrews 4, that Jesus is the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. A precious cornerstone, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. A sure foundation, he's the logos that you've been searching for. The one who believes will be unshakable in Jesus name. Would you become unshakable today? Not by your own strength, but because of the cornerstone of Jesus. Now at the epicenter of your life. I know that you're searching for truth. I know that you're craving to be enlightened. You want to look virtuous. I know that you look at a universe that somehow exists inexplicably, that we are alive when we can't possibly be, but that there's this morality that pervades everything. You can't explain where that comes from, and when you think about what happens after you die, it scares you. That's why you're unwilling to follow through. You know that there's meaning here. You know that there's purpose to all this. You know that there's something transcendent, an arbiter, but your sin causes you to suppress that truth because of wickedness. In your heart of hearts, your whole life, you've always known the eternal nature the divine nature of God. He's always been there looming in the corner. He created you. He loves you. You sense his justice. It it bears its fingerprints all over the universe and you know he's there. You're afraid to answer to him. And so you try to construct a worldview of conflicting ideas. You'll even borrow from Christianity while condemning Christianity. And the result is this hodgepodge that's not sustainable. You cannot, you cannot march your futile trek toward eternity without trying trusting in Jesus as the cornerstone. You cannot put together a pastiche of conflicting ideas. You cannot have a worldview that is coherent without accounting for where the world came from and where the world is going and what a moral authority is authoritative. You know, you know that without Jesus, without the logos, the origin of logic itself, that the whole worldview crumbles. He's the cornerstone. Everything rests upon him. When you take your worldview and the way that you interpret things and your sense of morality and you take out the cornerstone, you take out Jesus, everything crashes down. He's the cornerstone, he's the truth, he's the word, he's the savior, he's the prince of peace, he's the everlasting God, he's the one who created him. In him we live and move and have our being and before him every one of us will stand. I pray that you see him that day not as your judge but as your savior, that you would stand before God the Father imputed with his righteousness. He is where everything came from. In the beginning was the word, the logos, the cornerstone. And everything, everything comes from him. Everything is going back to him. So would you not be crushed by the cornerstone? Would you not trip over the cornerstone? Stop tripping over Jesus. Place your faith in him right now as the Holy Spirit of God draws upon your heart. Pray with me. He's the cornerstone. He's everything. He loves you and that's him drawing on your heart. God, I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son that I I would not die but have everlasting life if I believe in Him. I believe in Him. I believe that Jesus is the cornerstone. I confess, God, that I have sinned and I've fallen short of the glory of God. I'm tired of virtue signaling. I'm ready to confess instead. And I confess that the wages of that sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe you, Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, the life, the cornerstone. And there's no way I can come to God the Father except through you, Jesus. So right here and now, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord Highlands Community Church, would you say, Jesus is Lord, say it. Jesus is Lord. God, I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. I believe that he is the cornerstone. I will not trip over him. I will build my life upon him. I will not reject him. I will put him at the center of everything. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved in Jesus' name. Amen.